You are listening to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Wine-Banks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations with experts on various issues facing our country today. This is Victor Shi. I'll be an incoming freshman at UCLA next year and also the youngest Joe Biden delegate here in Illinois. Jill, can you give us a brief introduction about who you are? Sure. Um, I'm the co-host with Victor and I am also a Biden delegate. I'm the author of The Watergate Girl, which I hope you'll all read, based on my experience as the only woman trial attorney in the Watergate case. Um, I also served as general counsel of the Army, as solicitor general and deputy attorney general of the state of Illinois. And maybe more relevant to this conversation, I was the chief officer for career and technical education for the Chicago Public Schools. And so have some background in administration of a school program. Um, And we're very excited today to have an expert uh, who Victor will be introducing. Yeah. So as always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. On our show today, we'll be discussing um, the topic of reopening schools amid coronavirus. Um, We've already been seeing schools reopening and others are just uh, days or weeks from reopening. So to help us understand what schools will need to do to reopen safely, we're so excited to be joined by Elaine Maiman. Um, And because of her book and her uh, current research, we will also be discussing um, you know, using uh, this moment to improve higher education in general. Um, until a few weeks ago, Dr. Um, Elaine Maiman was the, prof- the, was the president of Governor State University, the only public university in the south suburbs of Chicago through her 13 years as president. Um, she helped lead GSU through the Great Recession of 2008, the Illinois state budget and its last months of her presidency and the first phase of this coronavirus pandemic. Before heading GSU, um, Dr. Maiman was the chancellor of the Arizona uh, University of Alaska Anchorage and Vice President of Arizona State University, where she led the West Campus. She has also served on the boards of the American Council of Education, the American Association of Colleges and Universities, and will soon be at the American Council on Education. She's also a prolific writer in professional publications and is the author of Leading Academic Change, Vision, Strategy, and Transformation. So thank you so much for being here, Elaine. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah, so I want to jump right into this conversation today. Um, the debate of reopening schools has received a lot of attention in the media lately. Um, you know, many peers are already um, beginning to go to school. Some have already gone to school. Um, but what, we, what we've been seeing during the coronavirus pandemic is schools grappling with how to reopen um, without putting their faculty, professors, um, community, and students in harm's way. Um, a handful of schools have opted for this um, complete reopening model. Some have opted for um, a hybrid model, and others have just shifted completely to online online learning, as you're well aware. Um, as the president of GSU, you dealt with the first phase of the coronavirus pandemic. So what do you suggest as guidelines for reopening schools and colleges in the fall? I think it's always important to work from principle. And let me just say what the three principles are that have guided me uh, in my uh, decisions in the first phase of the COVID uh, crisis and that I suggest can uh, guide uh, grade school through grad school. The first one is respect science. Educational institutions, as a, we have core values in terms of being the teachers of science, the, those uh, at the universities who do scientific research and develop science. And we have to stay true to that 
principle. Uh, we, we are science-based institutions and we have an obligation to help the public understand science, reject pseudoscience and magical thinking. We have to make decisions based on evidence. And the evidence in different localities is going to be somewhat different, uh, but we have to be sure to look at it objectively and carefully. The other thing we need to do is to help the public understand that science is iterative. We change hypotheses and continue to test them. We don't find permanent solutions. So, for example, uh, very early on in uh, February, early March, Dr. Fauci had some questions about masks. And of course, he was referring then to the more uh, technical kind of mask that has to be pre uh, preserved for healthcare workers. Now, he is emphatically based on further research saying that not masks so much as face coverings are absolutely essential uh, to stop the, the spread of the virus. And yet he is criticized because, oh, well, back in February, you said no mask and now you're saying mask. That is a, a ignorant misunderstanding of science. And we in education have to be in the forefront of helping to explain that. that so that's the first principle. The second principle is respect teachers, staff, students, and communities. And what that means is the top priority in that respect is to protect the health and safety of all of those constituents. That's our first priority. That was my first priority as president of the university, uh, that uh, whatever the circumstance was, my, I had to make a decision so that I protected the health and safety of anyone at the institution. Mm -hmm. The second way to respect these different constituents is to make sure that education is of the highest quality, whether it's remote, hybrid, or in person. It has to be of the highest quality. It can't be cutting corners or uh, it, that it, online education can be remarkable. It has to be remarkable if, that, if we're going to be doing it more so than we've been doing it before. We have to analyze course goals and determine how to meet those goals on various platforms. That's the key. It isn't, well, what percentage are you going to be remote or, or so forth and so on. You have to look course by course at how you're going to achieve your goals. The third principle is be creative. Innovate with remote delivery. This is an opportunity to do all kinds of interesting things and to make remote delivery more interactive than uh, a 300 student lecture, to tell you the truth. Um, and we have to also find new ways to create relationships online because that is so key in education at any level from grade school to grad school. And then third, we have to use this catastrophic time to plan for a different future in education.
Yeah, for sure. I think just to kind of reiterate um, those three pillars. So one is, you know, respecting science, um, respecting teachers, the staff, the community at the school, um, being creative. And then lastly, knowing that this, this moment um, will definitely bring about changes to higher education, um, hopefully for the better. So in terms of these pillars, um, what we've been seeing with colleges that have begun to reopen or are kind of like working through that phase is kind of like dealing with those three pillars with some of these guidelines for in-person learning. So we see, you know, social distancing, cleaning, um, testing, contact tracing, um, you know, kind of restricting how many people go into gyms and the um, dormitory hallways. But one big requisite for all those things is funding and money. So um, we know that many elite private institutions, you know, like Harvard and Yale and some of those top institutions, um, those funds aren't really um, a big problem for them. But for public universities and for smaller colleges that you know, don't really have as big of an endowment, um, how difficult is it to find and maintain some of these guidelines? Um, and if they do, and if they don't have the funding, does that mean that they don't reopen or that they um, have to cut funding from other activities like sports and extracurriculars? Like how should this um, be handled from like, that funding aspect? Well, before the pandemic in this topsy-turvy society, uh, the uh, public institutions that are doing the uh, major work in educating what I call the new majority have been seriously underfunded. And it's just been wrong. Uh, when I say the new majority, uh, let me define that. That means first generation, students of color, adults, and military veterans. Those, those students were marginalized for a very long time. They are now the majority. And one of the major changes that needs to occur and be accelerated this year is more attention to that group that is the majority. Now, in terms of funding, uh, what I have recommended to uh, institutions uh, of, uh, of various places on the economic scale, that this year is a year for investment. That sounds counterintuitive, but what that means is that for the public universities, uh, I know right now in Congress, there's a big debate about uh, further assistance to the states and to the, the public universities. Uh, the uh, proponents, uh, mostly Democrats, I will say, who are uh, arguing for more support to the states and to the public universities must win because the states and the public universities need this support. Uh, now, whatever, I think we are very accustomed, accustomed in the public sector to um, do what we can with what we can. Uh, and so uh, the public investment should be coming forward, but uh, I know at Governor's State, I made sure that we built reserves during uh, over the years, mm -hmm. and you don't like to use your reserves. Uh, it's not a good idea, but this is a year when that investment is going to pay off not only in human terms, but I would argue in financial terms. Um, also, I think, again, uh, we, we have to look at, at things we never looked at before. I know that private institutions are very uh, reluctant uh, to uh, use their endowment, the, the kind of flexible monies, and that's not a lot, but some is flexible, to use money from their endowments. This is the year to do it. Uh, for the public universities that don't have the endowments, uh, I would suggest doing some, doing radical kinds of things. The Federal Reserve, has uh, loans called Main Street loans. 
uh, which uh, the public universities that are really trying to make an effort to build for the future should look into. So in short, no, you don't close. Mm -hmm. uh, no, you don't cut the things that really represent uh, your future. Uh, and what you do is you invest, you make sure you keep people working, uh, and you make sure that you are rethinking your whole way of doing things this year so that when we come out on the other side of this, uh, we're going to be prepared to do things a whole lot better and more financially stable. Mm -hmm. So uh, just being creative, um, like you had mentioned, the, that last pillar, um, being creative, is definitely um, so important in this unprecedented time. But kind of shifting now towards um, kind of the experience that many freshmen and just college students and um, high school students will be experiencing is, you know, um, inter an integral part of the college experience is not only being able to interact with, you know, faculty and peers, whether that's in the class or their dorms or at club meetings, but also using the college's facilities. Um, obviously, with COVID-19, these interactions will be severely limited. Um, for my generation, many of whom will be incoming freshmen next year um, at universities and colleges across the nation, how difficult will it be for colleges to provide a full college experience? Um, we'll get into deferring and kind of the options for students later, but um, so how difficult will that be and how can they provide um, those, I guess, traditional colleges, college experiences while also enforcing some of those guidelines like social distancing, mask wearing um, that are necessary to reopen schools safely? Well, first of all, it's going to be different. That's just the way it is. And that's something that students need to learn, um, that uh, the world changes. And we have to find ways uh, to um, be productive and uh, find ways for self-fulfillment within those changes. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what, what, whatever the proportion of online, hybrid, face-to-face, that's going to be a necessity. And that's where my three principles, you know, come in very importantly. We have to respect the science, respect each other, and be creative. And I think there are many ways to do that. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so now um, this is a particular concern from some of the out-of-state students. So next year I'll be going to UCLA. Um, I'm here in Chicago. And um, so let's say that there is an outbreak of COVID-19 on campus. If we kind of do go back to campus. So in that case, I'd assume that, you know, many colleges will be, many students will be panicked um, that it may spread to the rest of the campus. And um, those students will have to quarantine for at least two weeks, which will impact the professors and also um, the students learning experience. So if there was an outbreak of COVID-19 on campus, would colleges have to send their kids back to home? Um, can they keep their students on campus knowing that a student who has COVID-19 may spread it to other faculty members and students, like how, how would these kind of issues be grappled with if there were um, an outbreak of COVID-19 on campus? Well, first of all, it's gonna be different given the different circumstances of uh, the various institutions. Mm -hmm. For Governor State University, for example, uh, we are mainly a commuter campus. Uh, we, we have uh, a very small proportion of the students living in Prairie Place, you know, which is uh, our living learning community where we have three faculty members living. So it really will we'll be a living learning community. We never closed Prairie Place. We didn't close uh, in February, March, April. Why? Because it was the safest and healthiest place for the students who chose to stay there. Uh, we made it possible for any student who, uh, lived, who lived nearby, wanted to go home, 
to go home, you know, get a refund on the rent. Now, that wasn't the issue. But we have a number of students who live in Englewood, a uh, section of Chicago, which is not a healthy place. Um, it wasn't healthy uh, before the uh, pandemic in many places. And I mean, let me just give great respect to the people of Englewood and, and you know, the great work that they are doing to make it a healthier place. But the, the fact of the matter was that our students wanted to stay in Prairie Place and to, uh, to um, be um, semi-quarantined there. So um, fortunately, we didn't have any outbreak. Uh, I think the students were very appreciative of being on campus. We had very strictly enforced um, procedures. Uh, we, we basically, most, the campus was not crowded. I mean, we, we um, didn't have on, on campus person-to-person -person classes with very rare exceptions. Nonetheless, we did have, um, we had certain people who had to work on campus. We had our police, our buildings and grounds. Uh, we uh, had uh, others who had to be there uh, from time to time. But um, I think there, those who were there had a strong appreciation of our allowing them to be there. And we didn't have any challenges in terms of the masks, in terms of the social distancing and, and so forth. Now that's a different situation. Let me uh, use U University of Illinois as another example, because I think they are doing an amazing job. Um, first of all, their, their scientists in, in epidemiology have developed uh, a saliva test for COVID. And uh, you can get the results in four hours. I do not know why this isn't more widely distributed across the United States. I mean, four hours. I mean, it isn't getting tested. It's getting the results through the testing. I mean, if you have to wait more than 48 hours for your results, you might as well not have taken the test. So uh, University of Illinois, there's an article in the Tribune today. Uh, they're going to have everyone on campus um, tested twice a week with the saliva test. Mm -hmm. So they're going to you know, be able to um, have very good knowledge about who needs to be quarantined, sent home, uh, whatever space they're going to reserve on the campus uh, for a quarantine. Uh, the other thing, and, and that's important, and then let me just make an, another point. Um, I know that uh, Governor State University, Moraine Valley Community College, mm -hmm. uh, we are giving instruction to people uh, in contact tracing. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you talk about employment, that's an area that is just so in need yeah. of more people who can trace contacts for those who have been exposed. And I would just say that every community college and, and, and public university should be providing some education and contact tracing mm -hmm. because it's not a formulaic or easy thing to do. I mean, you, you have to be able to ask people some questions that they're not gonna wanna answer going to have to have to be a little bit of a social worker you're going to have to be a very good communicator and this is not something you just know how to do naturally so in any case my general answer to your question is that it's situational it has to do you know with um the nature of the student population it has to do with what they're doing with testing yeah i mean kind of so obviously for those colleges that are reopening or are thinking about doing some like hybrid model of in-person online learning like those um, guidelines are so essential for um, bringing those students back to campus. But um, for the colleges that are staying online, um, a lot of my peers, including myself, um, 
are considering the possibility of deferring a quarter, semester, or year um, because of that, you know, option of, you know, uh, we don't want to pay for tuition given that, you know, um, it'll all be online classes and that, you know, it'll be interrupt with kind of the traditional college experience. But given that many of the colleges will um, be either all online or some form of hybrid mode, um, is it worth for students to pay for such high tuitions, um, but lacking that vital in-person learn that instruction and um, experience that makes college such a unique time in um, our life? Well, first of all, I really believe it's very important for students to be in a structured academic environment, but it doesn't have to be the conventional one. Uh, I, I think that, uh, again, it, it goes into my point about being creative. I mean, let, congratulations in UCLA, it's a great place. Uh, I think you'll be very successful there. And, you know, what I would recommend that you do is to talk to the uh, people at UCLA. Um, uh, start with the admissions office, but then get connected with a professor, a political science professor, or a professor who would be interested in doing an independent study with you, uh, where you could uh, not just do your podcast and be a, a, a delegate at the Democratic Convention, but the important academic part of that is reflecting on it. And you know, doing what you would need to do according to your professor to show those reflections. Maybe it would be in podcast form, maybe you do a podcast reflecting on the experience as a delegate or whatever. But uh, I would work, try to work out uh, something that would involve your enrollment at UCLA, uh, but with uh, your uh, opportunity to do something creative uh, that would be academically very sound. And it would be a win-win situation because the universities and colleges that are creative in this way are going to be the ones that are going to emerge from all of this uh, in the best places. And for you, Victor, either there's certain kind of practical things that you will miss out on if you are not enrolled anywhere. Uh, you know, for example, um, in the spring under the Federal CARES Act, uh, universities were able to uh, give students funds to, um, for anything, but it was mainly so that they could increase their technological capacities, they, they could uh, not have to make a choice between um, food and a new computer. And uh, Governor State University was able to give uh, up to $1,000 to each student who made a, a, a brief application, uh, but uh, who um, was also uh, FAPS eligible because of the federal guidelines that had to be. If you're not in school at all, you're not going to be eligible for anything that uh, the uh, government comes up with. And I sure hope they come up with something uh, in these negotiations this week on what's called the HEROES Act from the House. Uh, but, and, and so let's say that things don't work out with UCLA and you can't uh, arrange for this kind of independent study where you'd be an enrolled student. The other option for you and for other students is to enroll in a local uh, regional public like Governor State or community college, uh, make sure that you would be taking courses that UCLA would take and transfer, and you can get approval in advance for that uh, with, a, you know, with the, your deferring admission. You would have to talk to people there, get something in writing uh, that would show that uh, your courses would transfer. Uh, but then you would still then be in a structured educational environment 
and I think it's a good thing anyway, because uh, this coming year is going to be a year of tremendous ambiguity, uh, tremendous stress. Mm -hmm. And I think that the more that students can be uh, in a structured environment uh, with that kind of uh, larger support system that you have from education, the better off the student will be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think just when this pandemic started in high school, like being a graduating high school senior, um, like a lot of my peers were saying how like when this first started, um, it was just a lack of structure that really got to them and um, kind of affected their learning environment. So I do think that um, maintaining that structure is important, but kind of finding, like you said, those creative ways that you can maintain that structure, whether it's this independent study or um, whether it's, you know, going to community college, I think it's definitely um, advice that I hope all students um, will listen to and um, really follow. But um, I do know that Jill wants to ask some questions, so I'll hand it to her. So once again, Elaine, thank you very much for joining us and for this great conversation. Um, I wanna start with maybe a slightly different perspective, which is instead of from the student's point of view, I wanna talk about parents and school administrators and their point of view. Um, there's been a recent uh, sort of kerfuffle uh, locally uh, about reopening schools where the school said, no, we're not reopening. It's too dangerous to the faculty. It's too dangerous to the students and health concerns just are predominant. Uh, but parents were arguing that their students needed the social interaction um, and in-person instruction and that online wasn't as good. And so they were pushing for the school to reopen. So how do you balance uh, reopening safely, whether it's, you know, totally online or some kind of hybrid with the desire of parents to have a complete reopening with total uh, in-person education. And I suppose even with, um, you know, the, the pressure of the Trump administration to let the economy get started by letting schools reopen so that parents don't have to stay home to educate their children or to even just supervise their children, they could go back to work. How do you balance that? Well, I'll go back to my principles, respect science, respect each other and be creative. Uh, the, uh, the idea is that yes, there's scientific evidence uh, on the uh, importance for uh, children to uh, have interactions and, and, and uh, so forth. You know what really though, just a tangential item, just puzzles me. Uh, the Trump administration and others have been such proponents before of homeschooling that homeschooling was, you know, the thing to do. And now suddenly they are the great proponents of <laughs> opening the public schools. Although and I do want to add, I think that his grandson, Barron, is going to be starting um, online school, like completely at home, which many people have been like, um, why is he doing online school? But then Trump is forcing all these schools to reopen. It just seems hypocritical in that sense. But yeah. Well, it, it is remarkable. But, uh, you know, I think that the, the whole idea is that uh, you, you have to look at the scientific evidence in the different areas. And you've got to take this thing out of politics. Yes. Because yeah. there's scientific evidence that has to be balanced. And remember, science is, is not exact. Uh, you, you have to always be balancing the various uh, pieces of scientific evidence. Yes, students do need the interaction. We have a six-year-old uh, granddaughter who was just yearning to go back to school. I mean, it was kindergarten canceled for her this year. 
and uh, she had, um, a, she's in a wonderful school district and uh, the kindergarten teacher would do one-on-one -on -one with the kids. And, uh, and I think it's gonna be a whole lot even better for first grade, but for crying out loud, it's first grade. You know, she was just on the verge of reading. And uh, in any case, so I'm very sympathetic with, you know, the scientific evidence that says that students need the social interaction, but that's not the whole picture. It doesn't help anybody if uh, the children are not, maybe they're not getting sick themselves, but if they are carriers and are, you know, creating illness uh, in uh, staff and, and teachers, that's not going to help the economy. That's not going to help education. It's not going to help anybody. So these things really have to be balanced. The other thing is that, you know, we have to respect teachers. If, if you have a teacher who has a pre-existing condition or uh, is vulnerable in, in what we know scientifically uh, is uh, going to put that uh, teacher at very great risk. I don't think there's any way that that teacher should be forced uh, out of quarantine and, you know, and, and doing anything but doing it remotely. I, I just believe that very strongly. You just don't do that to people in terms of, you know, forcing them to choose between their livelihood and their health. Uh, but then my third point in terms of being creative, that's the key. Uh, we had to go into the uh, quarantine very suddenly in March. And even with that, I, I am so proud of faculty members at Governor State University. Uh, the things that they did creatively during that quarantine, I'll give you an example. Um, an art teacher was teaching printmaking, um, helped the students through Zoom and other ways to use household items magazines and other kinds of things to transfer images. Uh, and this is something, I mean, this is a great thing to learn that you don't need, you know, kind of very high powered printmaking equipment, you know, to be an artist. And another art faculty, I'm very proud of our art faculty, uh, was a ceramics teacher. And uh, she did videos and helping the students um, individually in their homes, uh, you know, do uh, the, the clay pots. And then she went door to door, social distance, wow. picked them all up, took them into the kilns in our art studios and fired them. That's the kind of creativity that we need to see uh, just on steroids as we go into uh, the new academic year. The idea that the teachers have developed ways uh, to be more creative, more engaging, using the technology in ways that has never been used before uh, in order to make it productive. So I, as I say, those three principles still hold for uh, decisions uh, on, on this matter. Thank you. Um, I have to say, listening made me remember in my era using a potato to carve an image in to create a Christmas card one year. So <laughs> that was my printmaking back then. There um, you go. <laughs> but also listening to you made me, um, I have a whole series of questions, but I want to sort of jump ahead in my mind to one about some of the benefits that might come out of this, the opportunities for positive change that this COVID uh, epidemic, pandemic, uh, may allow for high schools, colleges, universities more broadly. Um, I know you've thought about this a great deal and written about it. And if you could just sort of give us a, a brief description of what you think 
positive could happen as a result of these challenges? Yes. Um, in fact, if listeners want to look at my article that was published last week, uh, it's uh, in a publication called Inside Higher Education. It's the online newspaper on re of record for universities and colleges. And the article is called From Triage to Transformation. Uh, and the point of the article is that uh, we, we are not simply dealing with a worldwide pandemic. We're dealing with the confluence of the pandemic with a heightened awareness of social justice and an economic uh, cataclysm, all three inter interacting. And uh, in fact, uh, they're, they're, they are interrelated in you know, very important ways. And so this is a moment, and there, there was a great deal of reform going on. I'll talk about higher education now for a moment, but it really does apply across the board in terms of uh, reforms that make our um, institutions places where the new majority of students can uh, find self-fulfilling uh, education. Uh, and I know that Governor State was very much involved in these reforms and continues to be so. And a number of other uh, reform-minded institutions have been working on uh, these means. I, I'm very proud of uh, my service on the board of the, on the American Council on Education. And I, I do refer uh, listeners and, and viewers to look at the uh, names of the board members of that group because it's an amazing, across the different sectors, reform-minded group. Um, you know, uh, Georgia State University, uh, University of Southern New Hampshire, take a look. Uh, but my point is that those reforms were started, and I look at this coming academic year as a time to accelerate those reforms. I see it as a now or never situation. And I see that there are tremendous stakes, very high stakes. Uh, in fact, our democracy is basically in question. And this is the year, this is why I say it has to be a year of investment. This is a year when we have to accelerate what we have already been thinking about doing. For example, on the first year in college, uh, where we have to be sure that full-time, fully committed professors uh, who uh, are engaged not only with teaching but with research in that first year are engaged with students uh, at, at most types of, of institutions. In a place like UCLA, Victor, uh, I would settle for uh, the uh, full-time faculty, uh, let us say in English, uh, composition, you know, working uh, with a very heightened preparation of graduate students to be committed to the first year student and, you know, not, and, and uh, modeling it by having a few of them teaching it. This is something the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater, did a number of years ago. That is, you think, I don't know if people realize how revolutionary that is in higher ed, but it is because there's this thing called the name and hierarchical fallacy where professors tend to think that um, if um, I teach graduate students and you teach freshmen, I must be smarter than you. And we have to get over that. And this is the year to get over it. 
we have to, another kind of snobbism in higher education, which really gets in our way, is the um, partnerships between four-year universities and community colleges. Uh, the vast majority of students of color and first-generation students begin at community colleges. And we have some absolutely top-notch community colleges in this country. Uh, and we have to find pathways for uh, the students who have begun at community colleges to go on for a four-year uh, bachelor's degree and beyond. Now, again, Governor State University has modeled this. Uh, we've got national recognition for our pathway program called the DDP program. I uh, recommend that, again, people look it up. It's called the dual degree program. It's not dual enrollment. That's different. It's two degrees, associate degree, bachelor's degree. So those are just some examples of what we need to do this year in order to come out on the other end of this, ready to uh, have uh, reformed, reimagined, transformed educational systems that will then carry us through uh, for the rest of the century. One thing for sure, uh, Dr. Mammon is a transformational leader. I was privileged to be on her president's advisory council uh, for a number of years now um, while she was president. And I saw firsthand how she dealt with the budget crisis in Illinois where there was no state funding. Yeah. And she was you know, already into the semester trying to figure out how she was going to pay to uh, staff, uh, faculty, uh, provide the housing. I also saw her transform Governor's State from a two-year junior senior only, uh, which is unusual. Most community colleges or many may be freshman, sophomore, but they were a school that was only for juniors and seniors. And she transformed it to a four-year school and then added a residential facility as well. So she's really a transformational leader. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm glad we've had your input on this. Um, maybe just a few more brief questions before we wrap up. Um, because of, you've written a lot about higher education and leadership and you know, we've talked now about what COVID-19 could do to actually improve higher education. Um, what do you think are some of the specific challenges right now for educational leaders and institutions in this academic year starting now? Well, I think that uh, it's just human nature when you have to do triage, that can be all you do. Uh, because it is just uh, so panicky, so all-absorbing. Uh, and so I think the real challenge is to go beyond triage transformation. Um, in my article in Inside Higher Education, I talk about from cocoons, butterflies. And we have to really be thinking about that metaphorically. So that, that's a very important challenge. Uh, and the other challenge is that um, it, it is just so disheartening to see how all of this is being politicized and you know, basically um, you know, misrepresented uh, with, we, we, need, we, we need the public to have a better sense of what's at stake here uh, and the importance of education. And your podcast is very important. I hope a lot of people listen, uh, but we have to find as many means as we can because you know, we, we are um, working um, at cross purposes 
with uh, some of the uh, political uh, kinds of statements that are going around out there. And one of the worst things is, is, is this attack on science. I mean, that is just horrendous. So we will be posting a link to your article so that our listeners can all read it themselves. Um, and I, again, maybe one, one or two last questions. Um, I, I want to focus on the cost of tuition. Um, Victor and I have been talking about his upcoming college experience. And of course, I'm very concerned about not having the full experience and still paying the full tuition once I learned how much tuition for out-of-state students is. Um, and then I checked my own alma mater, where of course I went as a, an in-state student at the University of Illinois downstate. Um, and it's hard for me to imagine how anyone can afford to go to school so with the rapidly rising costs, is there something that we can say to parents or st students and something that we can do to control those costs in order to allow students to attend? Is there any reality to free college, um, even at the you know, community college or the uh, state-run school level? What can we do about tuition? Well, two ways to address that. Let, let me say that um, Governor State's motto right now is learn, lo learn local. And I think it's very important for uh, students in Illinois to recognize the extremely high quality mm -hmm. of uh, education that uh, can be obtained here. I mean, uh, I think that I, I'm so proud of the faculty and so proud of what we offer at Governor State University. Um, any student going there, which is the lowest tuition and mandatory fees in the state of Illinois, uh, is going to be very well served. Uh, and uh, so I think that I, I think families should be looking uh, at, at that uh, and uh, be thinking about that. That's number one. Number two, as I mentioned earlier, we're looking for very strong, viable, uh, creative pathways from community college to universities, four-year pathways. Um, we we can we've been able uh, we, we can counsel students at Governor State University to graduate without debt, whether they're in the dual degree program or we provide some additional support, or we uh, in our four year undergraduate program we are able through student employment which we are sustaining. Students are employed; they're working remotely; they're doing all kinds of interesting things. But we can. Um, we can help students figure it out so that they can graduate without debt. But let me take it from the other standpoint, because um, let's look at the private liberal arts colleges. Let's look at you know the, the uh, Ivy League. I'm an Ivy League graduate myself on full scholarship. Um, I think students and families have to take into account what is it that they are really paying for there? You're paying for the prestige of the institution. Uh, you are paying for uh, whatever interaction the institution is going to provide for you in terms of whether it's uh, Zoom or whatever, uh, you know, whatever creative things they're going to do so that you're going to be a Yale or you're going to be a UCLA person. Uh, and of course, the, the rich institutions uh, are really quite generous about 
enormous financial aid packages where you can actually, where students who are in need can actually uh, have uh, no debt when they graduate. And I don't know if the general public even quite understands that, but um, it's true. Um, you know, so I think that it really is a question of, you know, families thinking through your values. Let me go back to the public sector and, and you know, I know pressure in the public sector. How could we reduce tuition right now? We are, all of us in the public sector from University of Illinois uh, to Governor State University, every one of us is trying to be creative and to invest in a very strong student experience right now. Our tuitions are, are already low and subsidized by the state. And there's, you know, we still have to pay, the, we not only do we have to pay the faculty, we have to pay the faculty in the summer, for example, to uh, really learn more about creative remote education. So any kind of demand for the publics to reduce tuition is just not realistic. It's, it's not really taking to, into account you know, what it is we're trying to do, you know, in terms of, you know, the three principles of respect science, respect uh, each other and uh, be creative. So I get very impatient, you know, with uh, the, the calls for the, the publics to uh, reduce tuition. As a graduate of um, the University of Illinois, where I think I got a first class education um, at a very, very low rate when I was in school, we were talking hundreds of dollars a year, not thousands. Um, and uh, then going to an Ivy League law school. And there's no doubt that I, I think it opened doors to me that might not have otherwise been opened having gone to an Ivy League school and introduced me to people that have that are my lifetime friends who are all outstanding individuals. So there are pros and cons of everything. I got a great education at a very low cost as an in-state student and think it's all terrific. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I also, as someone who spent a significant portion of my career as a corporate officer, I understand the economics of it and the costs. You have to pay faculty, you have to pay uh, for the facilities, you have to pay for the maintenance, you have to pay for supplies. Uh, you, you aren't wasting money and also as, going through with you the budget crisis in Illinois, uh, where you weren't getting any money and how you managed to continue educating students during that time is just phenomenal. So um, I think that may be a whole nother discussion uh, that would be worthwhile for people to really think about what is the cost of education, but keeping in mind the possibility that even though, for example, in Illinois, they weren't even paying what they were supposed to pay to maintain the universities that they, that are state-run universities, um, but still the idea of free tuition at community colleges is an idea whose time may have come, and it's something that we need to think about in terms of the future of our society where schooling is necessary for, um, the economy. It's necessary for people to get the jobs that pay well. They have to have certain educational background. But that's a whole different conversation. And I think that um, unless you have something that you would like to add, um, you know, something we didn't ask about that you think is essential for our listeners to know as schools begin 
the tough part of reopening with social distancing and sanitary measures that will protect students if they are in class. Um, well, uh, there... let me just say something that we didn't really cover and mm -hmm. leadership matters. And I just want to do a shout out to uh, Governor Pritzker yes. uh, yeah, and to sure. uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I really do believe that the three principles that I articulated about respect science, respect each other, and be creative are really exemplified in both of them. Uh, and it makes a huge difference. Uh, and I have served under a number of different governors uh, in this state. And uh, I think we are fortunate that uh, we have uh, Governor Pritzker right now. Yes. Uh, and I mm -hmm. think that uh, the, the general framework that he's established uh, for the state and for the openings and the different phases uh, is uh, really important. So I just want to make, I certainly want to make a point of that. And also just to let viewers and listeners know that when uh, this pandemic first uh, struck, in March, um, the public university presidents were on conference calls uh, with the governor's office just about daily, mm. uh, including weekends, mm. uh, as we sorted out, you know, what science was saying and, you know, just what it what it would mean for us in terms of the public universities. And I know mm. that that support from the governor's office uh, and from the Illinois Board of Higher Education uh, have continued. Uh, and that's very important to the state. And, and it's a model for other states because I have, I think we've all seen other ways of dealing with this issue. Thank you, um, Elaine. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because we are a very lucky state to have Governor Pritzker and Mayor Lightfoot. Um, I think they have both been extraordinary in leading us and will continue to do so. So thank you for mentioning that. I'm very happy with that. So Elaine, as you've said, respect science, and that means everyone should be wearing a mask. And respecting others, everyone should be wearing a mask because you may be asymptomatic and you don't want to infect someone else. So please, everyone, respect science. Good, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with both of you. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. We hope you listening also enjoyed this episode. Be sure to follow us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and send us suggestions, ideas for future topics, and speakers you'd like to see via Jill, myself, or our website. Lastly, Intergenerational Politics is now on Apple Podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and rate our channel to support us. Thanks for listening, and see you on our next episode.